Thanks, Anne. Um, I just love the fact that God has a sense of humor, at least after those prayers. Let's all hope he does, right, Stephen? <laughs> it's so good. Uh, that was great. And it, look, it is such a joy to be here, and uh, it feels a bit like a, uh, it's like a family celebration to come and gather together on this day. So I'm going to pray, uh, Lord God, speak to us in our busyness, in our stress, in our questioning, in whatever state we're in. Just speak to us this morning, I pray. Amen. So it's Father's Day, and nothing provokes a deep sense of inadequacy like the experience of being a parent. Isn't that right? Holy moly. It's wonderful, isn't it? Like you're a parent. It's like, oh, that's brilliant. But in those quiet moments, you go, man, who's up to this, right? Who's up to it? Uh, I heard recently at, at a talk at school, at the, where my children go to school at St. Andrews, um, the, the fellow, an oncologist, who started an organization called The Fathering Project. And he started this because as an oncologist, he spent a chunk of his life uh, telling middle-aged men that they had terminal cancer and, you know, had three to six months to live. And what would happen is he'd tell these men that they were about to die, and what would, what would happen is they would just start talking about their lives and their regrets. And man after man after man said that they regretted how they had been a father. Their lives were full of regrets at the time they hadn't spent with their kids, the time that had passed. And they'd look at him and they'd say, is it too late? So eventually he said, well, what I've got to do is uh, let's, try and, let's try and break the cycle and get to dads before they're full of those regrets, which is awesome, right? But here's the thing. <laughs> love parenting programs, love the fathering project, but there's something in us that means like we're just always going to stuff things up, aren't we? <laughs> you know that. I know that. I would jokingly say, as those of you who know me will know I use humor to deal with you know, difficult and troubling emotions. So I'd talk about my kids and I'd go, well, I'm just, my goal is to give my children something interesting to talk to their therapists about one day. And, uh, but inside, it kind of kills you when you fail as a parent, doesn't it? Kind of kills you. Now, of course, it's not just those of us who are parents who have this experience. We know our own experience of being parented is fraught, isn't it? Our own parents, no matter how wonderful they are, also failed us in all kinds of ways. So, you might say, be thinking to yourself, what on earth does all this have to do with Stephen and the church's first martyr? Well, I think it's got a lot to do with this, actually, because I was thinking about Stephen. And I was thinking, as I, as I read this story and as I thought about it, I thought, man, here is a lesson in failure, isn't it? 
Like, this is a man whose life did not go very well. He becomes a follower of Jesus. He gets promoted to waiting on tables in his church. And then he strays from that and starts preaching. And uh, he has one cracker of a sermon that ends up so ticking off the authorities. Like, talk about, talk about missing the point with his audience, right? Uh, you know, sometimes people have accused me of being a little provocative. Um, nothing like Stephen, because I'm still alive. He was so provocative, they stoned him, and he died a miserable failure, crushed in a little muddy heap outside the gates of Jerusalem. What a failure, right? At a human level, when we look with the eyes of this world, you go, yeah, that was what a waste of a life. And yet, and yet, we know, don't we? We know that in fact, with God, Stephen's life wasn't a failure because we know with God that if Christianity is true, and there's a big if there for sure, don't presume uh, that you all agree that it's true, but if it is, one of the most wonderful, extraordinary truths of Christianity is that in this life, failure is never final. It's never final. Our failures, other people's failures, our, our disappointments, our inadequacies, these are not final and defining for us. Look at old Stephen. What was the result of his gross failure as a preacher? Well, I'll tell you what the results were, right? And, and the text is really interesting. Because, he, you know, I mean, he really gets stuck into the leaders, and, um, and then he, he dies. And while he's dying, there's this young guy, Saul, who's watching. And this is the first time Saul is mentioned in the story of the early church. And, uh, and then it says, Saul approved of their killing of him. And then, as we heard in the reading, Saul went on then to start persecuting the church. So, so who's, here's a, who is Saul? Who's Saul? Well, he's a guy who later on in the Bible has an incredible encounter with God. It turns his whole life around, and he becomes the person who takes the message of Jesus from outside the little Jewish uh, ethnic group that, where it was being preached and takes the message of Jesus out to the rest of the world with, uh, with such power that it changes the whole world. So, and as we read Paul's story, Saul's story, his uh, participation in the stoning of Stephen and watching Stephen die was a pivotal moment in Saul's journey to faith to become Paul. So the end of Stephen's story is not that he died in a, in a mushy puddle crushed by stones outside the gates of Jerusalem in abject failure. The end of Stephen's story is sitting next to you in a chair today. Like, we're the ending, right? Like, not me, because I'm Jewish, and, you know, I would have been good, you know, without Stephen, but you all who are not Jewish, you know, you all, you're here because the, Stephen's failure, used by God, redeemed by God, taken up in God's plan in ways that would have been utterly unthinkable 
for everybody watching, and 2,000 years later, God's redeeming, healing, restoring plan is still working through that failure, and we are the result of it. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that we serve a God who is in the business of redemption and of restoration and of renewal? Aren't you glad parents, that your failures aren't necessarily final for your kids because you don't know how the story is going to end. Now, little aside, this is not license to be a complete moron as a parent. Do get help, you know, if you need it. Therapy's great. Counseling's great. Parenting courses are fantastic. But when you've done your level best and you've still screwed up, isn't it great to come to God and say, yes, my failure isn't final and God, you have a plan for me and for my kids that I can't begin to imagine, I can't begin to see, but at the heart of the universe is a father of pure love who can redeem and heal and bring life out of death itself. That's great news, hey? I think that's great. I don't know. Maybe you're all like... The ending for your story and the ending for the story of your kids has not been written yet. You don't know what it's going to be. God is the one who will write the ending for your story. And let me tell you, if Christianity is true, the ending is going to be good. It's going to be great. It's going to be unimaginably more wonderful and glorious than anything you could begin to imagine because that is the kind of God who Stephen died worshipping. The kind of God, when Stephen was there and he looked up and he saw Jesus, he says, that's the God that I worship. It's Jesus, crucified, died, crushed, but who's come from the cross and from the grave into glory. And Stephen looks at him and he goes, that's the God who's going to write the end of my story and so I can die in peace. It's the God who's going to write the end of your story if you'll let him. It's wonderful. And, dear parents, it's the God who's going to write the end of the story of your kids and your kids' kids, and your kids' kids' kids, kids' kids' kids, and you just don't know. But you pray, you live in hope. Isn't that awesome? And if you have a particularly fraught and difficult relationship with your parents, don't give up. Don't give up. The story, the ending has not been written yet. God's still at work, right? So that's the first thing. It, there's, you deal with failure and redemption. That's what we see. The second thing about Stephen this uh, Father's Day, which I love, is, oh my goodness, out of his complete belief and trust that God would look after the ending of his story, Stephen is a man who tells the truth. <laughs> Isn't Like, I love this. Um. He tells the truth. Uh, not, not, and, and the truth is not always popular. Like, in fact, I think most of us have a moderately resolute commitment to avoiding the truth most of the time. 
because the truth is accuracy of representations. A statement is true if it represents the way the world really is, and we actually mostly don't like to see the way the world really is. Because it's, you know, we, we, it's just tough. So we pretend, we minimize, and we deny, and we, you know. Here's old Stephen, man. Gently, politically correct, he stands up and he looks at the leaders of Israel and he says, you stiff-necked people, they've just mounted a campaign of lies against him. He's on trial for his life. They've got all these false witnesses organized and he stands up, he rebuts their claims, they've, they, and we, we, we won't get into it because the whole of Act 7 is actually the longest speech in Acts. And you could say this is a warning against long sermons, but I'm not taking it that way at all. Um, uh, he, he gives this long rebuttal. They've criticized him and said, you've, you've, uh, you've committed blasphemy around with your claims about the temple and about the Torah. And so he retells the story of Israel saying, no, 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 no. In fact, you've misunderstood it all along. Jesus and his interpretation of temple and Torah are exactly right. And then he gets stuck into them and he says, okay, I've dealt with the factual issues. Now let me tell you the truth about your heart. And the truth about your heart is you're just like all your ancestors. You hate the truth. You hate prophets who tell you the truth. And you're probably going to kill me just like you killed all the other prophets. And they all went, heck yeah. Yes, that's exactly what we, that is exactly what happened. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. That's a terrible insult to a Jewish person. It says all your outward religious observance is nothing. You might be circumcised outwardly, but yeah, you're a hard-hearted pagan on the inside. Was there ever a prophet your ancestor did not persecute? That's a rhetorical question, which begs the answer, No. By the way, which commentators also say indicates that Stephen was fully expecting that he would be killed as a result of the sermon because he was saying exactly what the prophets before him had said, and they'd been, uh, they'd been resisted, they'd been persecuted, they'd been killed. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you've betrayed and murdered him. So, hey, what does that mean about telling the truth? Well, listen, um, <clears throat> they say that the truth is the first casualty in war, right? And now we can think about that and we can go, well, but I'm not at war. We're not a nation state at war. Listen, let me rephrase that. Uh, truth is the first casualty in interpersonal challenges and conflict. Truth is the first casualty in relationships because you know, I, we, we don't want to tell the truth to each other because, listen, if I tell you the truth about you, uh, you might hate me. You might persecute me. You might reject me. If I tell the truth about me to you, like if I let you really see me, you might hate me and persecute me and reject me. Chances are pretty good you will. So we, we engage in this dance of half-truths. It's the human condition. Telling the truth is terribly hard. It's immensely risky. Isn't it? And yet, yet we can't live 
in this world. We can't make our parenting or our marriages or our, our families or our communities, our churches, our businesses, our society work unless they rest on a foundation of truth-telling. As hard as that is, because truth is the way we get in touch with reality, and when you live out of step with the way the world really is, your life doesn't go well. So you've got to tell the truth. And, and what that says for us as followers of Jesus, if we follow in the footsteps of Stephen, bearing witness to the truth, telling the truth, even when it comes at enormous cost to ourselves, is something that is just essential to the life of faith. So let me step back and say, okay, we'll, we'll move out of just the realm of family and parenting. Let's think about our culture. Has there ever been a time in recent memory when, when the voices of truth are so confused, when there is so much disinformation in the world? We are drowning in information and competing voices, and they're all telling us about life in a particular way with a particular spin. And in the midst of this, there is enormous pressure coming upon us to be women and men who tell the truth. It's only going to get more. You look globally uh, as our democratic, our liberal democratic institutions, human rights, freedom of expression, independent judiciary, free press, these things are under attack all around the world. Our social commitment to these is being undermined all around the world. We've lost sight of the value of these things because they're inconvenient and they're problematic to those in power. Because what you want if you're in power is, the, is to use your power to silence dissent, to, to tell people what to believe, to stop them speaking out. And as followers of Jesus, we stand in the tradition of Stephen, the prophetic tradition that says, no, do you know what? We will, we will speak truth to power even if it costs us our lives. We will defend these things even when it costs us our businesses. And I'm not just speaking about same-sex marriage, though some could argue that I might be. But I'm also speaking about how we are going to face the rise of totalitarianism and fascism in our world, on both the left and the right. How are we going to stand as people and say, we believe in the absolute fundamental reality of human rights for all people? in a world where those rights are trampled on by people in power. And the institutions that have grown out of our Judeo-Christian worldview are being undermined all around the world. So this Father's Day, the witness of Stephen is a personal challenge to truth-telling in our families, with our kids, with ourselves, but it's also a massive prophetic challenge to us as a society to say we need to be a society built on truth. And that is going to be that is and I, that is going to come under increasing challenge. But like Stephen, we'll stand and we'll say the truth. And like Stephen, it may cost us our lives. Not a pleasant thought. Now, there's a final thing though, just 
to lighten the mood. Actually, not really. Um, <laughs> failure, truth-telling. <laughs> what is it in Stephen's life that takes his, I mean, harsh, like what he says to them is incredibly harsh, right? Like it's brutally honest. But, but he hasn't, he hasn't weaponized the truth. You see, the truth, truth can be used in our hands as a bludgeon, as a battering ram to oppress people. And, and you know, when, when you use truth like that, you typically don't get a great result. What, is, what does Stephen do? What's the stance of Stephen's heart? What's his, what's his attitude towards those people to whom he's telling such harsh truth? I mean, they're gnashing their teeth, they're picking up the stones, they're chucking the stones at him. And what is his attitude? What is he? As they are killing him, he prays for them. And what does he pray? He says, Lord, don't hold the sin against them. See, this is the unique extraordinary contribution of Christianity to the world, where we, we have a way of being that, that does not respond to violence with violence, that does not respond to a, a, an infringement of our honor with a cycle of retaliation to, to recapture our honor or the honor of our family. We, we don't live in a world where there is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth anymore. And we get it caught up in spirals of revenge. Do you know what? We live in a world where because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where hatred and violence is met with hearts that long for blessing and forgiveness and restoration for our enemies. That's, that is Stephen's stance. That's where his heart is at. Even as they're killing him, what does he want? He says, God bless them. God forgive them. The greatest blessing in the world is to be forgiven by God. Can they be any greater? I mean, to say, to, you know, there were, other, there were um, seven brothers, the Maccabees, who uh, led a revolt against Rome, and they got caught, and they died. And in Josephus, he tells us how the Maccabees died. And they died screaming out uh, imprecations and curses uh, and calling down God's judgment on the Romans who were killing them. That's the way most people die. That was, in throughout human history, that's been held out as a good way to die. You go down fighting, you go down calling judgment on, the, on your enemies, right? And Stephen goes down praying for the greatest blessing possible for the people who have unjustly accused him and are now murdering him. <laughs> so, so he fails at a human level. He tells the truth courageously, which results in his death, and he does that because he knows that God is in charge of the ending of his story. And then what he does is he dies praying blessing on those who are killing him. Forgiveness. So here's a parenting tip from a martyr. Your kids, your husband, your wife, 
need to know that no matter what they've done, no matter how evil they might be, no matter how disappointing they might be, no matter how serious the truth is that you need to confront them with, it comes from a heart that says you will never, ever reject them. You will never hold the past against them. And at the core of your being, all you want for them is blessing and life and love. That's your heart. And, you know, that's, that's the essence of God's plan for us to make our world work. That he changes our hearts. (laughs) As we experience his forgiveness of us, we're in a place where we want to bless our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. Now, how do you love an evil person, right? Well, this doesn't mean you don't want justice, you don't tell the truth doesn't mean that there's impunity for evildoers. I'll just give you a little hint how it works. Uh, in my life, people have committed evil against me in a variety of ways. Uh, as a teenage boy, being sexually abused by a youth group leader. And the, the biggest journey of my life, spiritually, has been to get to a place where I could say... Father, Heavenly Father, forgive this man. I don't ever want to see him again. But I could pray for his forgiveness, but I could also report him to the police. I could also work with the authorities to make sure that the full force of the law was brought to bear on him. Why? Because actually justice, consequences, are part of God's severe mercy to bring him to repentance. I didn't want that to crush him. No, to be honest, part of me did. (laughs) But, but a deeper part of me, the Christian part of me, wanted the consequences to be brought to him, wanted him to find Jesus in jail, though he never went to jail because most abusers don't because it's way too hard to prosecute and prove, and that's another issue which we can't get into here. But what I wanted in my best Christian moments, which are far too few, was for him to find forgiveness from his father so he could be blessed and restored. Right, that. Friends, if we understand that, if God works in our hearts so that we have that stance and attitude to everybody around us, won't that transform your parenting? (laughs) That your kids know your heart is never at war with them. Your, Your wife, dads, men, your wives need to know your heart is never at war with them. That there is nothing they can do that will ever cause you to stop loving them and being committed to them and forgiving them. Isn't that amazing? How do you get that? How do you get that power to forgive the way Stephen did? Well, this is what I reckon. Uh, you look up and you see the glory of God and you see Jesus. You need a vision of Jesus to do this. 
you need a vision of Jesus to live a life where you understand failure is not final, where you have the courage to tell the truth, and where you have the capacity to pray for blessing for your enemies and for those who persecute you. And you can change the world that way. You've got to have a vision of Jesus. It can't, it's not going to come internally. This is, a, this is a supernatural thing, right? So here's what we need to do as a church. And if you're visiting this morning, I say, come and be part of this. We need to keep before us such a vision of Jesus and the glory of God that we say, this is what life is like. This is the power to forgive. This is the power for my heart to be changed because God has forgiven me. Who am I not to forgive others, right? God has told the truth about me. Who am I not to tell the truth about others? God has died and risen again for me so that my story will have a glorious, magnificent, wonderful ending. Do you have a vision of, do you have that vision of Jesus in front of you this morning? Is, is that vision of Jesus actually changing how you live, how you feel, how you forgive? Like, isn't that's it, right? Christianity is not complicated. It's really simple. I mean, it's also, there's, you know, you can write PhDs and get tied up in all kinds of philosophical knots for sure. But at its heart, it is not complicated, man. Look at Jesus. Let your heart and your mind be full of a vision of Jesus and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and let that change your heart so that you and I live like Jesus and we die like Jesus and we rise again like Jesus and we all do that until we're all with Jesus and we keep on at it and we keep on keeping on and we keep on looking at Jesus and that's it. Bang. Simple. Do that in your family, it'll change how you parent, it'll change your marriage. Do that as a citizen, it'll change how you engage politically. Do that in your business, it'll change how you run your business. Do that in church, it'll change how we do church. That's all there is. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for Jesus. Give us a vision of Jesus. Uh, we, we are dying without it, Lord. I am. I mean, and my heart is just, I lose sight of that vision and I become selfish and hard-hearted. I become scared and I don't tell the truth. And I, and I start to feel like my failures define me. And I for, forgive me for that, Jesus, and just give us a vision of yourself today. Break through our hearts. I just thank you for everyone here, Lord. It's a, it's a full house and we're here because we're hungry to, to get resources to make life work with you. So, so bless us. Fill us to overflowing with this vision and reality and presence of Jesus. I beg you, I pray for you in your mighty name, Lord. Amen.